I'm Dr. Chris Ryan, and this is Tangentially Speaking. Welcome to another episode, episode 101. Wow, triple digits. If you missed it, the uh, special 100th episode of Tangentially Speaking, the special guest was my lovely wife, Casilda Jetta. I'm really happy with that episode, and I'm very uh, grateful. We're both very grateful for the feedback that we've been getting. Uh, people seem to have really enjoyed that episode, which makes me very happy, of course, to be able to share that uh, amazing woman with you all. Because I, you know, I do feel that you're friends. Uh, we haven't met, most of us, but um, the fact, <laughs> I mean, if you've been listening to me in these conversations, a uh, hundred of them at this point, and not that you've all listened to every one of them, but some people have, uh, you've spent as much time with me as probably, uh, you know, all but half a dozen people, uh, aside from immediate family. So uh, I may not know you very well, but you know me very well. And uh, the fact that you're hanging out tells me that we have a lot in common. So we're all friends here. I appreciate your company, and uh, I really uh, am happy to be with you. I, I have mentioned this before. I, I love looking at the geographical uh, feed out from the podcast uh, sponsor, or not sponsor, what is it, the host, Libsyn. It gives me all this um, information about where people are. And there's one person in Botswana who listens to this podcast regularly. So a shout out to whoever you are in Botswana. You know, you probably hear me talking about Obama and shit going down in the States. And you're like, well, when the fuck is he ever going to mention Botswana? Well, I just did. All right. So there you go. Hope you're happy. Uh, Shout out to Mongolia. There are like half a dozen people in Mongolia, apparently, who listen to the podcast. I have no idea who you people are. I uh, got an email this week from a guy. I think he, he was from um, the Mold- Moldovia. Not Mongolia, but Moldovia. Uh, thank you. I don't remember your name right now, but I, I enjoyed your email. And if I didn't respond, I will uh, next time I'm on a long plane ride. Uh Thank you all for for the wonderful emails. Uh, A lot of people have written to offer their services to help Casilda with her book that um, I'm encouraging her. And sort of at at the end of the podcast, in an offhand way, I said, well, maybe somebody listening will uh, volunteer to help you write it because she's not much of a typist. Uh, and I think it would work well for her to be able to sit down with someone and uh, someone who could, you know, sort of listen to the stories and transcribe them, and then we could work with the text. Uh, so a lot of people have written to volunteer for that. Uh, I have to say, I'll save the emails, um, but Casilda's not completely convinced that she wants to do this, at least not right away. So it might be a while. Uh, if ever, before you're called into service. But thank you so much for for volunteering to help out with that. Speaking of uh, special guests that have been on this podcast, and they're all special, of course, but um, a very notable uh, guest was Mandy a few episodes ago. A lot of you have written uh, to me about her and, and been in touch with her, and it, it sort of sparked a big conversation about health and life and death and, you know, all those profound profound subjects. Um, Anyway, Mandy, uh, because she got such a great response from, I guess, partly because of her appearance on on this podcast, 
decided to start her own podcast, which is fantastic. Uh, I was the first guest. She's had, I think, five guests on so far uh, as of the beginning of December here in 2012. It's called Philosophy of Health, an Ancient Approach and Modern Critique of Personal and Global Health. Uh, and uh, it's at philosophy philosophyofhealth.org. And you'll see she put a lot of work into this website. I'm looking at it right now. It's very impressive. Um, and, uh, yeah, she's also sponsored by Sure Design T-shirts. Bennett, you're cool, man. You are very cool. Bennett is out there watering the seeds of change in the world with those T-shirts. So uh, check out Mandy's podcast at philosophyofhealth.org and buy some T-shirts. Buy them through Mandy's site, buy them through my site, buy them straight through uh, Shore Design t-shirts, whatever. They're great shirts, uh, no matter how you get them. I guess you get 20% off if you go through Mandy or through me. Um, but, you know, if you just say, hey, Bennett, give me 20% off, he'll probably give you 20% off anyway. So uh, however you get them, get some of those shirts. They're great. And he's got a whole bunch of other stuff uh, at his site as well besides the shirts. He's got yoga pants he's got bracelets he's got all sorts of uh sort of hippie hippie jewelry cool hippie funky loose comfortable stuff so definitely check out sure design t-shirts and check out mandy's podcast at philosophyofhealth.org i just got back from mexico last night i was in this beautiful little village called yelepa which is south of puerto vallarta you can only get there by boat. There are no roads that get in there. There are some pretty serious mountains. They haven't uh, managed to get roads through, luckily. So it's a little village with no cars, no trucks, pretty quiet, lovely, idyllic. Uh, everything comes in and out by boat, including the people. And uh, jungle, beautiful river, waterfalls. Fucking lovely, lovely place. Um, Cassie and I were down there for about 10 days. So I'm, I'm sorry uh, for those of you who are subscribed to the Talking Out My Ass podcast. I'm running behind on that. I know I am, and you paid money, and I've been slack on that, and I really am um, sorry about it. I'm going to try to do one today when I finish this, and I'll try to, to – I'm trying to get disciplined here because i got to get this book done. I've been beating around the bush for a long time, and it's uh, time to get serious. So I'm writing the book. I'm jogging. I'm you know not drinking during the week at least. Cassie's trying to get me to give up the booze all the time. But I like beer, and I'm in Portland. How can you live in Portland and not have an occasional beer? It's, you know – it's like living in France and swearing off cheese or something. It's just not right. Um, but anyway, yeah, I'm getting serious, getting healthy, getting disciplined, doing push-ups, all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, I'm not going to be in any sort of ring with Joe Rogan at any point soon, but at least I'll maybe get rid of the gut and feel better. I've been thinking about this uh, Bill Cosby situation, uh, which is just horrifying, horrifying. And, you know, I've, I've been thinking a lot about, and I've, I've spoken on the podcast quite a bit about uh, the sort of thought police, you know, on the left, the, the people who are scolding anyone who uses the wrong word for this or that. And Dan Savage got in 
a shitstorm uh, a couple months ago because he was talking about the history of the word tranny and how it had been used. You know, it was a slur at one point, or now it's a slur, I guess, but it, uh, 10, 20 years ago, it was a term of affection among the LGBT community and wasn't uh, didn't have that negative connotation. And Anyway, he was talking about this, and he got in all this trouble for even using the word in a discussion of the or etymology of the word itself. You know, it, it's just out of fucking control. Uh, a couple weeks ago at Oxford University, there was a debate that was going to be held about um, abortion. And uh, there was a pro-abortion or pro-life and a you know pro-choice, however you want to frame these things. And and they were both men who were going to be talking, and it turns out that they, they canceled the debate because there was so much protest that men would be talking about this. Um, you know, there's just so much policing of what can be said and who can say it. White people aren't allowed to talk about black, th- black problems, and, you know, it's just like fucking out of control as far as I'm concerned. There was a really interesting interview um with chris rock the comedian uh on this well he talked about this with frank rich i highly recommend it i think it was in new york magazine just google frank rich chris rock you'll see it great interview and and chris rock talks about this and how he doesn't play universities in the u.s anymore because he said they're too uh, conservative and frank rich said "What, what do you mean he said well i don't mean conservative politically it's not like they're voting for republicans they're conservative intellectually they're they're unwilling to entertain ideas that make them uncomfortable and for a comic like what the fuck that's your bread and butter man that you know and as a any sort of public intellectual as an author what you're doing what's what's the line i think it was mark twain who said i write to uh, i'm gonna fuck this up now but it was it was to I'm paraphrasing. He said, I write to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. I think I got that right. In other words, and the, and the, honestly, that's why I write. That's why I wrote Sex at Dawn. Casilda and I, you know, we, we, I guess the motivation was that we felt like, hey, there's something interesting that the world should know about, right? But it turns out that the thing that motivates both of us is to speak a truth that helps people, right? That helps people who need help and fuck the people who are hurting the people who need the help, right? Now, I'm developing um, a way of expressing this in Civilized to Death that I think shows how we're all fucked, the, the oppressors and the oppressed. The, you know, the prison guard at Auschwitz, yeah, he's not a prisoner, but he's fucked. In his own way, he's fucked, um, just like the prisoners are. Um, now, again, not in the same way the prisoners are, not to the same extent you, you can certainly argue that the prisoners are, but you could also argue in some ways he's even more fucked because at least if you're a prisoner, you say, I didn't do this to myself. I didn't volunteer to be here, right? Whereas the guard, fuck, man, you're there. You're following orders. Now, I'm sure the guards can also say, oh, I can't, you know, what could I do? They told me what to do. Anyway, I didn't want to get off on Auschwitz. My point is I've been thinking about the Cosby thing, and I've been thinking about the thought police and this sort of thing on the left. And, and something interesting occurred to me, which is that 
they seem to be unrelated, but I don't think they are. And I think they're related in a way that um, is sort of counterintuitive. Because I think that the reason we're talking about Bill Cosby, the reason that the Catholic Church is still in the news for sexual abuse, and not old cases, new cases constantly coming up, new situations being brought to light, new priests being pulled into the spotlight. This Gian uh, Gomeshi thing in Canada, the radio host who was, um, you know, apparently into S&M and wasn't uh, allowing the women he was with to decide whether they were going to be into the S&M too. So he's now um, actually legally in, in trouble for uh, sexual abuse. Bill Cosby apparently was drugging women, including women who were sleeping with him anyway. That's It's bizarre. I, I read an article recently by a woman whose friend had been sleeping with Bill Cosby, and she knew Cosby. They never had a sexual relationship, but uh, they hung out together, and, and uh, she knew what was going on with her friend and him. And then uh, after the, the friend and Cosby had been seeing each other for about a year, apparently— and then he drugged her. This is a woman who's fucking him already, up for anything, apparently, according to her friend, and Cosby still drugged her. So he wasn't necessarily drugging women in order to sleep with them. The guy was, you know, one of the most famous people in the country at that point. So he didn't need to, obviously. He just likes women unconscious, apparently. Anyway, the point is, I think the reason, an, an important, a central, essential reason that these things are in the news, in the spotlight, out of the shadows, is that people like Dan Savage have dispelled those shadows. In other words, these things aren't being pulled out of the shadows. It's that the shadow is being reduced. The area of darkness in which these people can hide is shrinking. And it's shrinking because we're talking about this stuff. It's shrinking because you can talk about rape now. You can say you were raped. You can say someone else was raped. I can talk about it on this program. I could talk about it on television. I could talk about it on the radio. The fact that we can talk about it, the fact that we can talk about masturbation. Masturbation is a word you couldn't even use on television 20 years ago, 30 years ago probably. Or maybe I'm, maybe I'm messing up the, the history here because actually things were a lot more liberal 20 or 30 years ago than they are now. But my point is that because these conversations are acceptable, it reduces the, the space where these people can hide. If you can't talk about sex at all, then how can you talk about the fact that you were raped or someone you know was raped, right? It's, too, it's offensive to bring up the subject. Therefore, you can't talk about instances of this sort of abuse happening because you can't talk about sex. So what I'm trying to say is that all this thought police policing that's coming from the left, these people who are saying you can't talk about this, you can't talk about that, you know, you've got privilege, therefore you're not a legitimate person to even discuss this, 
those people think that what they're doing is supporting victims. They think that what they're doing is empowering victims. And I think that what they're doing is inadvertently weakening the victims because they are removing the cleansing energy of open discussion. And if you remove that, then you create dark spaces where monsters hide. Speaking of monsters, Cassie and I were in a bar here in Portland a couple weeks ago. I don't think I mentioned this on the podcast. We were watching an NFL game, and we were sort of at the bar, and there were a bunch of tables and big screen, widescreen TV and a lot of people hanging around. And she was sitting in front of me, and I was massaging her shoulders while we watched the game. Now, I do this all the time in Europe. I used to be a massage therapist. Some of you have heard me talk about how I had a job massaging lingerie models and all this stuff. But, um, you know, I just sort of do it naturally uh, without thinking. And, in fact, it's relaxing to me. If we're watching TV, like I I feel like I should be reading, I should be doing something. You know, it's like kind of I feel like I'm wasting time only doing one thing. And and if I'm massaging her, it occupies a certain part of my mind that isn't occupied by watching sports or whatever. It's a good combination. She's happy because she's probably not that into the game anyway. And. So I'm massaging her and, um, you know, just her shoulders, her back a little bit and her neck. And uh, this woman comes up and says, I want you to know that you're offending American feminism. <laughs> and so I laughed thinking she was joking, right? I thought, I thought she was making fun of the sort of person who would get offended by me massaging my wife in a while watching a football match but she wasn't joking she was serious and um yeah it was it was pretty strange i gotta tell you it's one of those things that um i can't imagine happening in europe and it's just one of those moments that reminds me how different american society is how uptight and how uh frightened of pleasure and contact you know in spain you when you meet somebody new uh as a man if i meet a woman i give her two kisses on the cheeks kiss kiss and it's still weird to me here when i meet someone and you sort of stick your hand out and there she is you know a meter and a half away and you shake hands oh yeah nice to meet you it feels so weird Weird culture. Another thing that gets me here is little kids. Little kids running around, cute little kids. And you want to, like, play with them and talk to them and, you know, ruffle their hair or whatever. And sometimes I do that here and I see people look at me with suspicion. Like, I'm some predator. I'm a I'm a pedophile. I'm, you know, they got to keep an eye on me. What's he doing? That's not his kid. Why is he touching that kid? What's going on over there? Fuck. What a weird place this is sometimes. All right. Well, if you want to support the podcast, uh, as I said, show design t-shirts, always happy if you send some money their way, buy some shirts. They're great. Other ways you can support the podcast are, 
through uh, the Amazon link on my page. Go to chrisryanphd.com. You'll see the Amazon link on the right margin. Click on that. Uh, If you're buying a bunch of shit for the holidays and you go through there, I'll get a cut. Uh, The podcast gets a cut of whatever you spend at Amazon. So that is very helpful. Uh, If anyone wants to do that, most, most appreciative of that. Um, also, if you want to talk about the podcast, there's a, a thriving community on Reddit. Just search Tangentially Speaking uh, all together, no space, and you'll find that community. There are four or five, six hundred people, something talking about episodes and, you know, whatever music I play or, you know, whatever fuck ups I commit. Thanks, as always, to Carsey Blanton for Smoke Alarm, which you'll hear at the end of the podcast, as always. And if you're interested in consensual non-monogamy and the people who are into that sort of thing, go to Kotango, K-O-T-A-N-G-O dot com. There's a community there, five, six, seven thousand people at this point uh, talking about how to make that work. Um, so it's not really a dating site, but, you know, they're, if you're interested in that sort of thing, it's a place where you can meet those people. And if you want to date, you can date. Um, But if you just want to talk to people who are into that sort of life and see how it works and share information and contacts or whatever, that's a great place to do it. Kotango, K-O-T-A-N-G-O dot com. I'm really happy uh, to bring you this week's guest. Um, Doug Fry is an anthropologist who specializes in the prehistory of war. Uh, He's uh, very knowledgeable about hunter-gatherer people and particularly uh, in the aspect of of, uh, their lives that pertains to war and peace and uh, social interaction and so on. He's somebody I've read um, quite a bit and I've corresponded with over the last few years. This is the first time we've chatted uh, voice-wise, but we've chatted, uh, you know, through text quite a bit. But um, anyway, he's a very knowledgeable guy, and he is the antidote to the sort of uh, bullshit that Steven Pinker and some others are, uh, Napoleon Chagnon and others of the sort of what I call the neo-Hobbesians are peddling this, you know, nature, bloody and red in tooth and claw and all that kind of stuff. So anyhow, Doug Fry, fantastic, uh, interesting guy, and I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did. Here's a little ditty by Nick Lowe, sung by Elvis Costello. What's so funny about peace, love, and understanding? See you next week.
All right, so I'm just doing a sound check. You want to just say hi or something? Hello. Yeah. How's it going? That'll work. Good. Um, all right, cool. Well, I'm here on, on Skype with uh, Dr. Doug Fry, formerly of, where were you, in, in Norway or someplace, Finland? You're very close, Finland, yes. Finland, yeah. At Obu Academy University in Finland, the Vasa campus. And Vasa, um, or Obu Academy, is the Swedish-speaking university in Finland. I'm still maintaining one tie with them. And do you speak Swedish? Uh, I speak Swedish worse than I speak Finnish, which is really poorly, mm. unfortunately. Yeah, that that's got to be a very difficult language. I, I, I was I thought you were Finnish for a while when we first started corresponding a little bit. I should explain the way I think, if memory serves, the way I met you was that we were both on an evolutionary psychology um, listserv years ago. Yes, and yes, that's true. Yeah, and I think you first. I don't remember if you uh, reached out to me or I reached out to you, but I got into a bit of a dispute uh, with um, uh, Napoleon Chagnon about his theories of warfare and the Anomami and all that. And I really knew next to nothing about it. I was just questioning some of his um, uh, his uh, arguments. And without, I didn't even know... You know that this was the, one of the biggest disputes in anthropology. <laughs> I was, I just, you just stumbled your way into the heart nest, didn't you? I did. I just saw him making some claims, and I thought they didn't make much sense. And I had a, I knew he was famous. I'd heard of his book, but um, the fierce people. But I, this was before, uh, I think, before um, uh, Darkness in El Dorado came out, and and you know the shit hit the fan. But anyway, you and Brian Ferguson and some other people who are very active, I now know, are, are pillars of this whole debate, um, were on there as well. So it was it was great to be on the what I consider to be the good side of that that particular dispute. Um, well, I mean, it, it, you might want to recap, or we can recap together. It, it is a very interesting and relevant dispute, actually. Shagnon back in 1988 in an article in Science, just sort of as a, a, a footnote almost to the article itself, pointed out that killers seem to have more kills than uh, more kids than non-killers, and uh, that that started the whole thing off. Various evolutionary psychologists thought, "Oh, this is great! You know, violence pays. Killing pays off in terms of evolutionary dividends." And wow. That confirms our, our preconceptions about human nature. Right, exactly, reflecting this, uh, this set of preconceptions. But then that, that started the whole thing, and despite a whole series of critiques and criticisms, the, the, the idea seems to have stuck around for a very long time. I'm sort of wondering now uh, if it's finally going to die its natural death or not. Well, it, it's interesting because... Um, you know, something I, I spent the morning uh, looking at your your most recent book, uh, edited volume War, Peace and Human Nature, The Convergence of Evolutionary and Cultural Views, which is uh, a real masterpiece, I would say, uh, for any serious oh, amateur or, or certainly scholars who, who want to get a well-rounded, um, very well-resourced uh 
uh, source to to uh, understand what's going on in this debate. And and uh, we sort of just jumped right into it. And I, I do an intro uh, to the podcast so people will know who you are and all that. And there will be, oh, okay. you know, so I just I don't want to waste your time with that. So just so you know. Um, but you've been very, very uh, generous to me over the last few years. When I was researching Sex at Dawn, you answered my emails. And um, then I read, uh, I guess, Beyond War came out when I was in the process of researching that book. And mm-hmm. uh, I cited it many times. And, and really, uh, that's an excellent place to start for people who want to uh, to read a, a very accessible account of why this bloody Hobbesian vision of human nature is not, uh, in fact, scientifically accurate, I would say Beyond War is an excellent place to start. Yes, well, thank you for saying so, Chris. And and I, you know, I agree with you, but who am I to agree on that topic? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I wrote that book as a trade book, uh, yeah. intentionally trying to write it in a, a light and lively way. And I've gotten a lot of good feedback from readers of all types of different fields and professions and ages and so forth. So it seems to have succeeded pretty well uh, with some storytelling and a lot of good anthropology. I remember thinking, you know, anthropology is so fascinating. I just cringe when I read something that's so dry and I'm thinking, how can you possibly take this fascinating material and make it so boring? So I really strove hard to make Beyond War interesting as we talked about these various human nature interests and looked at the evidence, what the evidence actually showed as opposed to preconceptions. Yeah, and and that may be one of the few things that you have in common with Napoleon Chagnon. You know, he knows how to tell a story. Yes, he does. You've got to give him that. <laughs> you got to give him that. So, for people who don't know, Napoleon Chagnon wrote a book called The Fierce People, right? In 68, was it? Uh, I think the first edition was around then, maybe even 67, but yeah. Or yeah, 68. I think you're right with 68. Which was, you know, at the height of the Vietnam War, the summer of love, uh, you know, t- <clears throat> discussions of, of whether or not war is an intrinsic part of human nature were front page news, obviously, as they still are, unfortunately. And uh, so he had been down in uh, Venezuela doing his doctoral research. And essentially, uh, you'll correct me if, if you think I'm overstating this, but it certainly seems to me that what he did was he went down there, armed some groups, gave them machetes, uh, and then sowed the seeds of conflict by tricking them into giving the names of the dead ancestors of some of the other groups, which is violating a central taboo in Yanomami society. And then when he finished sowing the seeds of conflict, he reported on the conflict and called it human nature. Yeah. um, I I mean, this is in in some sense, I mean, I basically agree with you and and the purpose of the overall gist of what you're saying, but I'd be a little bit more cautious about you know, blaming Chagnon himself for... Yeah. Of course you would. You're an academic. You have to be careful. Well, I mean, <laughs> that, I, I actually have some compassion in my heart for the poor guy. He, he seems to get himself into trouble every which way he turns, and I guess he deserves some of it and probably deserves most of it, in fact. But... Um, yeah, I think blaming all all Yanomamo conflict or aggression goes too far if we blame it on on Shagnon. Yeah, um, but but certainly he engaged in some questionable 
ethical tactics as well as some questionable methodologies like you just mentioned. Uh, have you happened to take a look at his, his most recent book? His, basically, it's his memoirs. No, I haven't read that. The The Fierce Conflict, is it called, or something about? I believe it's called Noble Savages, and I actually wrote a book review of it, so I got a free copy from the journal that wanted me to review it, and then it's a, a really thick book, and I was a little bit cringing. Oh, my God, now i got to read this much on Shagnon. But I gritted my teeth and got into it, and in my review, I concluded it's really sort of like three books at one in some sort of schizophrenic mix. And one is good old Indiana Jones, you know, battling the Indians and so forth. And, and that's, uh, you know, just plain entertainment. We talked about that he is a good writer and can tell the story. Uh, then there's some anthropology tossed in there, uh, you know, based on his, his decades of ethnography with the Yanomamo. And the third book is really odd because here he's taking on the other fierce tribe, as he calls it, the other dangerous tribe, and that's his colleagues, the anthropologists. So the subtitle of the book is um, My Life Among Two Fierce Tribes. I'm paraphrasing this, you know, two, two fierce tribes, the Anamamo and the anthropologists. Yeah. And it's really, to my opinion, sort of pathetic, because uh, over and over as you get into those types of chapters, he's saying my detractor so-and-so accused me of this, and my critic so-and-so. And when I wrote the review, I, 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 I tried not to be too hard on him, but I also was trying to point out that we're obviously dealing with someone here who has managed to receive a huge amount of critique in terms of his methods, his ethics, his motivations, uh, his theories, right on down the line. And it's sort of pathetic, actually. Yeah, and it's not coincidental that someone—he's someone who thrives on conflict. He's energized yeah. by it, and so, as you said, he seems to get himself in these situations wherever he turns. Um, that there's—that's not an accident, you know. Uh, what's there's an old expression if. If you go out and you run into an asshole, well, maybe there's some assholes in the world. But if you go out and everyone you run into is an asshole, you're the asshole. You know <laughs> exactly. So, um, have you seen? There's a documentary uh, about this this dispute in anthropology. It's something about the secrets of the tribe or something like yes, that. Yes, I, I have seen that. Yes. Yeah, that I found that gave a very good sense of how bellicose he is as a person and how sort of like he reminds me, you know, and I I, I didn't I don't want to talk about uh, him behind his back like this for the whole podcast, but he very much reminds me of a certain type of American male uh, of his generation, a sort of Norman Mailer, Ernest Hemingway Yes, you know, get out there and fight the bull, and you know, like there's. Well, I mean, I literally, I, I called him Indiana Shagnon in my review of his his uh, memoirs. Yeah, well, I understand exactly what you're saying, but if if we come around sort of full circle where we started with the substance of this killer have has more kids idea, um, 
one of his and uh, close colleagues who've worked with evolutionary psychology, one of the things they have been criticizing anthropology about is that anthropology is unscientific. And usually Shagnon is then held up as this pillar of science, or I shouldn't say that, a pillar of uh, uh, scientists doing good work. And what I found really sad was we get exactly the same 1988 summary of this is what I found, Killers Have More Kids, again in his memoirs, uh, published about a year ago. So it's like uh, he's not paid any attention to anything anybody has written in the intervening decades, but just puts this forth as, look, killers have more kids. Here we go again. I, I was right all along. And you mentioned how you and I first made our acquaintance here um, back on this evolutionary psychology list. There's actually published online as a, an appendix to an article I did with one of our doctoral students in Finland. And that appendix shows an abbreviated version of the conversation which Shagnon and I had following up on, you know, your initial stumbling into this with him that you started talking about just a few minutes ago. So like I say, coming around full circle, that's a very interesting exchange to read. I keep asking him, I asked three times uh, in the course of the back and forth, um, okay, so you say that the, the Unikai and the, those are the killers, and the non-killers are really of comparable ages, the same ages, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I show that they're not mathematically, but you're the guy with the data, so why don't you tell us? You're sitting on the data. What is the average age for Unikai? What is the average age for the, the non-killers? Tell us. You have the data. And three times he dodges it. Yeah. And I think that right there it is it's so amusing to read this from different angles. Yeah. But yeah. One is how the hell is this science? You point it, out that there's about a ten year age difference on average between And a minimum ten point four yeah. is what my calculation showed. Sort of, you know, giving things the benefit of the doubt. But I say at least ten point four. Right. So essentially what his numbers break down to is, you know, men who are ten years older have more children than men who are ten years younger. Uh so what? <laughs> right? They, yeah, exactly. They're 10 years older. Of course they do. Yeah. And, and another uh, sort of uh, target that we have in common, I think, is Steven Pinker, who does essentially the same stuff. Uh, you know, he gave that TED Talk years ago, which was based on a chapter in uh, the blank, what was it called? The Blank Slate? Uh, yeah. Blank Slate? Yeah. Where he lists what he calls 10 hunter-gatherer groups and uses their, uh, you know, death by violence as the male death in warfare as his baseline chart to then develop the idea that right. we're getting more peaceful. Then he took that and expanded it into his most recent book. And again, as as uh, you point out and Brian Ferguson also points out in, in this collection you've put together, but also in, in papers and elsewhere. This is not science. Most of the people that he's calling hunter-gatherers are not, in fact, hunter-gatherers. They're horticulturalists with gardens right. and villages and domesticated animals and all these things that you and your colleagues have pointed out are the precursors to war and that actual immediate return foragers don't have. That's the definition 
of an immediate return or simple hunter-gatherer. They don't have all these accumulated resources, so there's nothing to fight over. It's, it's incredible how resistant uh, the mainstream so-called scientists are to this very simple and extremely well-documented observation. Well, uh, in press at the moment, I have with um, uh, another former doctoral student, Patrick Sudaberry. We, we, we teamed up, we did a science article in the last year, which I imagine you've seen it at some point. Uh, but I, I could recap it for your listeners real quickly. Um, we decided, okay, let's try to actually present the data here in such a way that it's absolutely clear and indisputable, with indisputable in quotes, because in science, everything is always, in the end, disputable. But what we did was we, first of all, let the standard cross-cultural sample and the criteria of pre-existing researchers determine the 21 societies that we'd look at as nomadic foragers. Mm. So we didn't cherry-pick, in other words, and Pinker and Samuel Bowles, another researcher in this uh this area, as well as um, Rangham and his students and so forth. One of the main problems there is that they cherry-pick examples. Then they self-select or pick the sources they'll look at, and then they present examples, basically, that are by no means random or anything like this. And, well, bingo, they end up by pulling out the cases that are filled with aggression and so forth. So what Patrick and I did was we thought, okay, we let the sample be defined systematically. We're not selecting it. Um, and then we used uh, a list of the best, oldest ethnographies, which, again, is published by other ethnographers. And we looked at every single actual mention of a homicide in the literature for these 21 nomadic foragers. And that turned out to be 148 um, lethal aggression events. And 55% of that is one person killing another person. So right away, a majority of these lethal events, by no definition, can be war if it's one person killing another person. But the next stage of this was to determine whenever possible, whenever it was described, what was the reason behind this. And almost all of them involved very personal reasons, like two men having some dispute over a woman or sexual jealousy or a husband killing a wife. Uh, or revenge killings over personal motivations, personal insults, and so forth. So the types of things which um, Pinker and Rangham have been talking about a lot in terms of coalitional aggression, that one, the, the males of one group would attack the males of another group or a lone individual, sort of the chimpanzee model, if they were able to surprise them. We, we found really just a, a small minority of cases that might might fit that type of model. So, you know, if anything, if you look at the actual data for humans, for these nomadic foragers, um, you don't find any support for all this wild speculating uh, about uh, humans having an innate tendency to try to kill members of the, the local or uh, the neighboring group and so forth. It's just not there if you actually look at the data. So we followed it up. It's in press now, but um, we, we called it... Uh, you know, we would look at four myths, basically, about this, this whole situation. And one of them is the, the myth of the chimpanzee model, and another one is the, the pinker type of myth. So, I don't know, we can talk more about that or not. It's yeah. a little bit in the book that we're talking about, War, Peace, and Human Nature, but um, it, it's also taking it on, on another level and looking at these things in terms of a history and philosophy of science perspective, yeah. and trying to step back from it a bit. 
You know, uh, before I forget to mention it, War, Peace, and Human Nature is coming out in paperback in early October. Is that right? Uh, I I think the official date is November 1st. Oh, November, early November. Yeah. Okay, good. I'm not sure. I've, I've been hoping to see something on Amazon, you know, where everybody else <laughs> finds out. Just yeah, exactly. <laughs> people, people who have never written a book think that the author's relationship with the publisher is a lot closer than it actually is. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm just so happy they're putting it out in paperback. And, and actually, it took just a little bit of uh, my suggesting, and then they, they eagerly did it. It's uh, in, in hardcover now. I'm disappointed with the price. I understand it because it's about $100, basically. That's a pricey book. I know that. But I understand it also because it is, it's got 27 chapters. It's thick. I haven't looked at the pages. Um but the point is, it, it's selling well enough for them to make that decision with a little bit of suggesting from me that it would make sense for them to put it out in paperback. So yeah. I, I thank the people who already know it, have read it, uh, have written good things about it, and so forth. And I think also another reason that um, my publisher decided to put it out is it really does have a, a lineup of scholars who are world-renowned across different fields. Yeah. Paul, for instance, you know, is is writing the forward to it. We're not getting any, you know, absolutely new insights from Franz Duall writing a forward, but still, it it helps when he sort of draws a few observations about the book overall. And as you might have mentioned at the beginning here of our talk, we we have people from sort of across the different spectra of perspective, uh, including evolutionary psychologists. David P. Barish, and at the same time I say including peace scholar David P. Barish, because he's one of these interesting fellows that has these two specialties that uh, are usually not put together. So there's archaeology, primatology, nomadic forager studies. One of the the sections of the book that I feel uh, is really innovative is there's a section with four chapters about the idea of restraint. And that chapter is part five. It's called Taking Restraint Against Killing Seriously. Uh, this pertains to what we've been talking about, really. I, I come out of a background, I should say, of biological anthropology. And as a minor in graduate school, I focused in on, on biology. I took ecology and evolution, uh, population genetics, and so forth. So uh, where I don't claim to be a biologist in that sense, I, I know something. And I've always been intrigued in my thinking uh, with evolutionary theory. It also intrigues me from a history and philosophical science position that we have pe- people like Pinker, who's actually trained as a psychologist. And I, if I ever meet him in person, I'm certainly going to ask him about, you know, what what's your training and so forth, because I suspect that he's not really so well-versed in actual uh, evolutionary theory. Uh, now, I, I don't want to overstate this because people can learn new things as they go on with their careers and self-study and so forth. But at the same time, um, I think part of the problem with, with this whole controversy about human nature is we do have some big voices uh, talking with authority about things which they don't necessarily know so much about. And you just mentioned Pinker on hunter-gatherers. You know, he's not worked with hunter-gatherers. He's not an a anthropologist. He, it appears that he's not really read very much about nomadic foragers, hunter-gatherers. And in his early writings, he was clearly confusing the Yanomamo as being a uh, forager group, which they're not, yeah. and, so, and so on and so on. So 
it's really a shame that we end up with so much uh, confusion like this. But what I wanted to say, and I'm sorry to, to, to be monopolizing here, I'll, I'll be quiet in a minute. But, no, you're the uh, guest. Uh, okay, well, thank you for that. Uh, <laughs> section 5 about taking restraint seriously. This I find really ironic. If you look across the biological studies, the ethology, the animal behavior, again and again for mammals, you see how mammals will get what they, they need or want, uh, if they can, by just displaying. No contact whatsoever. And then if there's going to be a contest, it's exactly that. There's ritualized aggression. I mean, Conrad Lorenz made this idea popular back in the 60s, so that's a few decades ago. And subsequently, there's just a wealth of, of animal behavior studies reporting how infrequently, when you have contests among, um, it's usually males and mammals, um, yeah, every once in a while an accident occurs. Every once in a while somebody gets punctured by a horn and gets infected and they die. But the overall incredible majority is that the whole system is set up to um, avoid if possible. Okay, if you're not going to avoid for whatever reasons, you have a, a, a contest, you have a, um, um, what do I want to say, competition, then deal with it through display, try to growl uh, or make a face or something, and eventually get down to some fighting. But if you look at the ratios, as the primatologists have documented, and and I've, I've written on this as well, um, the, the ratio of uh, displays and non-contact aggression to actual contact aggression is, is really something. And then even when you look at the contact events, which involve some sort of physical contact, the injury ratio is, again, minuscule compared to the number of actual contact events. The whole picture here is basically that there's a lot of restraint across mammalian species and across primates. So why all of a sudden would evolution make an, an abrupt 180-degree turn and select humans that uh, are going to kill? And we, so we started talking about the killers have more kids. That That's bogus. You can't explain it that way. So, I mean, I, I think this is something where if you're going to call yourself an evolutionary psychologist, you really should take into consideration the mammalian background the mammalian baseline for our behavior. And once you do that, including primates, um, you see that the overwhelming pattern is for animals to avoid getting into situations that are dangerous, that are, might cause them death or, or serious injury. And I argue, we start looking at the anthropology or for matter crime statistics, uh, you know, it, it applies to humans as well. It absolutely does. And it's some absolute blinder to be talking about the murderer next door and all types of this stuff, which just turns biology per se upside down. It, but by the way, the murderer next door is the title of um, another evolutionary psychologist, David Buss's uh, popular book. So, so again, he's coming out of psychology. Yeah, I, I um, <clears throat> was at a conference with David Buss and uh, Helen Fisher not mm -hmm. long ago, which which was somewhat awkward, um, because in Sex of Dawn we take both of them to task for a lot of um, what we consider to be uh, uh, <laughs> well. The problem I, I'm tempted to say in Helen Fisher's case, I, I don't think she's guilty of this, but I think David Buss and Steven Pinker are essentially um, propagandists. 
And what they're doing is, and, and again, this is not, I'm not putting words in your mouth. You're an academic with an academic uh, uh, reputation to, to be concerned about. I'm just a flamethrower. I'm, I'm uh, completely independent. And so, <laughs> good, good for you. <laughs> exactly. So I can say some things that, uh, you know, that, that more cautious people wouldn't or possibly couldn't, but uh you know, I, I read these things, the demonic males and the murderer next door and, and Buss's latest thing is is like why women have sex or something like that. And it's all about gold digging, you know, and resource acquisition oh and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, and, and in the case of Pinker, you know, you said, uh, you know, like he's um, sort of uh, very careful about his, his sources, cherry picking and so on. But the problem is, as you point out, I don't know if it's in in one of in your chapter or in one of uh, Ferguson's chapters in your in um, uh, War, Peace, and Human Nature that I read this morning. One of you pointed out that in several cases, Pinker's pulling numbers that he's calling evidence of prehistoric warfare out of a, uh, anthropological reports that, in fact, recount the killing of tribes people by uh uruguayan settlers or paraguayan settlers they're being yes. shot by ranchers yeah pinker's taking that and saying oh there's evidence of warfare in this prehistoric pre-agricultural group that's bullshit and he knows it's bullshit because that's where he's getting the numbers you know it's well, like in the it, list it, sorry just it, to finish this point in the list i sure. mentioned earlier he was talking about um warfare in some uh, Papua New Guinea groups. And I went back and looked at the original research that he cited, and in the paper that he cites, the anthropologist himself, I think it was Bruce Naff or something like that, yes, right. says this is all personal disputes. This is all based upon witchcraft and things like that. This is not about warfare okay. or resource acquisition. Right. So, so, I mean, I, from where I'm standing, it looks very clear that uh, Steven Pinker knows he's lying, and he does it anyway, because he's famous and rich and doesn't give a shit. But this is really an incredible, I mean, it's, it's despicable, I think. Um, we, in the way I share your opinion of Pinker, I find much of what he writes disingenuous, and I pick that word carefully. Because if we look, for instance, at his chapter two in Better Angels of Our Nature, where he's talking about anthropology, if you're going to be a scientist, in my view, or a, a scholar, a reasonable scholar, and you disagree with somebody, um, you know, you cite, you say, Fry says this, and I disagree, and here's why I disagree. Or you say, well, Fry claims this, but he had a methodological issue, you know, he didn't sample right or something. And, and here's why I disagree with his conclusions. You know, this is science, this is scholarship. But what I, I found amusing, if not irritating, was Pinker takes an approach where he actually invents a group he calls the Anthropologists of Peace. Now, now who is this? You know, yeah. I, I imagine it includes me since I've written several books and a heap load of articles dealing with peace and anthropology. But I'm not cited, and none of the arguments or the data I'm putting forth are actually dealt with in a serious manner whatsoever. And if you looked, uh, as I'm not, you know, someone who's into literary style, uh, or even just a person reading it, I, I think you can see that the style is rather condescending. Uh, 
and a put-down towards anthropologists in general, but certainly towards this haphazard, made-up group, the anthropologists of peace with their ridiculous, naive articles and blah, 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 you know, arguments and blah, blah. So that I found, wow, that's disingenuous. But there's even an added wrinkle to this, which I find really amusing. Um, out of all of this several-page discussion about how anthropologists don't know their ass from the hole in the ground, can I say ass on your show? Oh, please. <laughs> okay. <laughs> then um, we have one footnote. I thought, okay, let's see where this goes. The footnote is to a letter by um, a Dutch anthropologist slash peace studies person, Johan van der Denham, who wrote an interesting book on the origin of war about 1995 or so. And van der Denham is upset with Franz de Waal the psychologist primatologist we all know about. And Van der Denham makes this term, uh, which I find amusing, the peace and harmony mafia in reference to the wall. So at some point there, my name is mentioned in this thing. Um, but I just found this amusing that Pinker's example of the anthropologist for peace is actually another anthropologist ranting and raving about friends, friends to wall. Like, okay, that's the best you can get up, come up with. So, yeah. you know, at the best, it's just lazy, shoddy scholarship. At the worst, as I interpret it, it's just disingenuous. And I think you had some good words for this type of argument just a few minutes ago, this type of writing style a few minutes ago. Well, he said uh, a friend of ours um, was a very prominent guy, was at a presentation uh, that uh, Pinker was at, and and our friend said, hey, what do you make of the um, the critique of your work in this book, Sex at Dawn, that came out recently? And Pinker looked at him and said, oh, you're referring to those bonobo people. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that was it. There was no response. There oh, we go. The dismissal. Yeah, of course. So anyway, that's enough about Pinker. I, I think it's clear. Uh, I, I had a guy on who was a graduate student of Stephen Pinker's, and uh, he's actually yeah. a pretty cool guy, and we had a good conversation. But I started, you know, raving about Stephen Pinker, and he just sort of sat back and smiled and said, no comment. <laughs> no, no comment. comment. No comment. <laughs> yeah. Well, I did want to touch on something you mentioned there, because it is outrageous. It is in Chapter 1 of War, Peace, and Human Nature. And whereas Pinker publicized this in his Chapter 2, it's in actually Figure 2, too, for those people who like details, Um Samuel Bowles is an economist, and he's the one that wrote an article where Pinker takes about half of his, his data, including the, the so-called, I say so-called, eight, yes, you heard right, eight, not 80, but eight uh, examples of nomadic foragers and how much war they make. And so, I mean, in Chapter 1 of War, Peace, and Human Nature, I saw that this really deserves comment. It's the introduction to the book. It's sort of setting the whole thing up. Here here we have a scholar from outside anthropology cherry-picking eight examples. He wants to look at war mortality, so lo and behold, he finds eight nomadic foragers, again, so-called nomadic foragers. They all have war, and guess what? They have high war mortality. Now, now Pinker jumps on this. Now, I, I don't know how naive or complicit Pinker is on this particular issue. How would we know? We could talk to him, we could ask him. We'd probably be called Bonobo people or something. Well, he wouldn't He wouldn't engage in that conversation. 
and probably and, not. And if I mean the guy's obviously intelligent, right? We're, we're not we're not criticizing his intelligence, and I think that's that's the sort of proof that this is considered. You don't. You're not an intelligent person who's got a tenured position at Harvard without knowing that if you're going to cite a study, you should cite what the study actually says, and you don't call, uh, you know, uh, people being killed as you say in in page 17 here. To be absolutely clear, the only so-called war deaths reported are those where indigenous people were murdered or massacred by Venezuelans. All these killings have been counted by Pinker as so-called war deaths, as if they had any relevance to estimating the war deaths in prehistory. That's just that's just propaganda. There's absolutely no way that that's a mistake. It's just appalling. Yeah. Yes. But you see, the, the funny way that these things work, here we've got the, the, this study by Bowles, published in 2009, was published in a prestigious journal, Science. Yeah. And it went through the review process and so on and so forth. What? It took some digging on my part to expose this. And, the, you know, I was flabbergasted, to tell you the truth. I thought this is just... But the way I came at this, from my knowledge of foragers who read about them, studied them uh, in the literature, because I've never done field work. I want to be clear on that. I've never done field work among foragers. I've focused on the accounts of foragers and sampling cross-culturally their behavior. So when I read this, the results in the science magazine by Bowles, I thought, this can't possibly be right. You know, it's yeah. just totally unbelievable. So the next question is, well, what's going on here? So online, as supplemental material to the article, Bowles has uh, lists of where he got the info. So then it's just going back another step. Yeah, I have that book. Okay, yes, I'll get this article. Reading those articles, looking at the book and going, oh my God, did he really do this? Yes, he really did this. He's counting massacres and murders by outsiders as if this had something to do with war deaths. And, and those are the only, we're talking two cultures here, two cultures out of this tiny sample of eight, just to, to make the point, um, where we, we have... Ranchers, settlers, colonists, uh, whoever the uh, Europeans are arriving, uh, massacring these indigenous people. They're outgunning them. They're outnumbering. They're stealing their land. Uh, they're wiping them out. And this is what is used as an estimate of war deaths in the Pleistocene. I mean, yeah. come on, folks. It's kind of reminiscent in a very ugly way of... Uh, you know, using the the fact that a woman's been raped as evidence for her being a slut. You know, it's like, how do you condemn the victim here? People are killed by these settlers, and you're using it as evidence that they are warlike. Yes. <laughs> you know, be having been shot is not evidence that you're warlike. Unbelievable. I, I notice in this uh, last section, Taking Restraint Against Killing Seriously, you've got a chapter... Uh, by Richard Hubank and uh, Dave Grossman called The Challenge of Getting Men to Kill, A View from Military Science. Right. I'm really looking forward to that chapter. I think I know, I, I've read uh, some of the, the stuff that they're going to be talking about, some of the studies from World War II showing that even when men were on Iwo Jima and these terrible island battles in the Pacific and Japanese soldiers are running at them over a hill. Most of them were shooting above the heads of the soldiers that were coming at them. 
it's extremely difficult to get someone to kill another person. And, and then when we have, in recent decades, with the U.S. military and reflexive training, and also I, I think, and I think David Grossman ad, um, advocates this idea as well, using the video games as part of our culture, you know, the first-person pe- shooter games, as just a way to, uh, you know, like pre-militarize the youth and so forth, mm. so that it makes it all that much easier for then the, the military training to take over and and um, work on these these kill uh, aim and kill um, percentages, but we take this all into consideration, and then what do we get? We we get soldiers coming back from Afghanistan and Iraq with PTSD. Yeah, they've been able to do this on combat, and it's it ruined the rest of their lives psychologically, physically. Uh, you know, the number of people who are come the, the number of vets who have committed suicide after coming back from these wars, is greater than the number of combat victims, you know, U.S. combat victims in the wars. So, I mean, what what in the world does this tell us, too? So, I mean, I I just see that as part of the overall picture that, yeah, I mean, human nature is malleable uh, to some degree, and you can overcome this restraint against killing, but there's something that that breaks in most people's minds after this has been accomplished through the military training and the drills and the practice and so forth. And they either end up depressed or with PTSD or, or both. I think P- depression is a symptom of PTSD, among others. Um, drinking, drug abuse, committing suicide. You know, they can't live with themselves, literally. Or and anyone it's not, else. It's not their fault, you know. I want to yeah. be real clear about that. As I see it, I'm not, I'm not trying to blame the troops. Uh I support the troops. I see the troops as a victim in this situation as well. Yeah. What gets mad is the military-industrial complex, you know, the leaders that send them off and the people who are making all the money off of these wars. Yeah, I, I often uh, say when people ask me about human nature, I, I say it's malleable, as you put it. Um, you know, we can we adapt to so many different situations, but as far as... Uh, peace and conflict go no one is walking around with ptsd because they helped a stranger yeah so well put so well put so there's obviously an uh, an innate orientation toward peace um you mentioned the military industrial complex and you know which brings us into politics which is so uh intrinsic to this conversation it's something uh, i'll be happy to avoid if it puts you in a difficult position working in a united uh, american university you know context where political correctness is uh you know i'm sure very vehemently strictly enforced but there's no way let's let's see what you have to say (laughs) well there i mean See, this is why I called uh, David Buss and Steven Pinker and that crowd propagandists, because what I see them doing is reinforcing a neo-Hobbesian vision of human nature that uh, supports the military-industrial complex. Well, I agree with you. Whether I'm being politically correct, incorrect, on the line, off the line, we'll lose my job. You know, I don't think I'll lose my job. But no, I, I totally agree with you. It's it, and that's why it's nefarious. It, that's what gets it me is. so angry about this. It's not just you know some people listening to this might hear like a couple of academics, researchers, you know, arguing about sources and interpretation of you know, academic papers or something. 
but in in fact, I had a big problem with uh, Sex at Dawn because one of the uh, I, I sent uh, the chapter the section on Steven Pinker. It's 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 called uh, Professor Pinker Red in Tooth and Claw. Is right, that, right. The, the name of the section. I sent it to a friend of mine who was um, uh, an academic and. Uh, and he wrote back and he said, oh, forgive me, I, I just can't read this. I'm just so overwhelmed with, with academies, you know, I, I, it's just too much. Yeah. And it, it wasn't that he didn't have time, it was that he just like, oh, a couple of people arguing, a couple of academics arguing about some obscure point. And that really pissed me off, because this isn't some obscure point. You know, if we're talking no, about... Really, real-world implications. Oh, my God, exactly. It affects millions of people. It affects, you know, decisions. As you, I think you quote Obama saying, in one form or another, war has been with us since the first man. No, it yeah. hasn't. No, it hasn't. But the fact that the president believes that to be true because he sees Steven Pinker on TV saying this bullshit reinforces a sense of humanity that makes war a necessary evil as opposed to a completely unnecessary evil. Well, I mean, th this is something I'm, I'm not even going out on much of a limb here because I've written uh, the similar types of ideas in recent essays and articles. Uh, actually, um, this last summer, there's a longstanding, now it's online, uh, or, or group that puts out a, a newsletter or a newspaper called Peace News. It's from the UK. And they asked me, would I please write an essay about my research, sort of updating what's been going on and so forth, which I, I did. But th this is the same idea. I tried to write something. What can anthropology offer to both peace scholars and peace activists? And so it, it, if you just Google my name and Peace News, if you're interested, you could find, find that essay. But I think anthropology really has a major contribution to contribute to this issue, including exposing our, our own political biases, our own belief systems, and how we in the States in particular, let's talk about the United States, we really are a culture that has seen a lot of violence. And there are, there are people, you know, citizens, people who've grown up in this country and have lived here, uh, myself one of them, who feel proud about the country and at the same time are really ashamed of what we've been doing more recently than not. Uh, this, this again, anthropology, I'm trying to speak as an anthropologist, not as a, a politician or someone in, interested or engaged in politics, but as an anthropologist, we're trained and we're accustomed to looking at the values that a culture has. And then what are the institutions that exist that probably reflect these values uh, to a greater extent? Um, not not absolutely in all cases. And what are the people talking about in their daily dialogue, in their daily discourse? What are the narratives that they tell? What are the stories that they tell? And when you start thinking this way about the United States co culture, as a culture, you see that we're just totally overwhelmed by a war-aggressive narrative that just permeates, you know, from the school to the community to the family to what's on TV, what's in the media, what's important to us, our values of, of, of courage and bravery, not backing down. Um, it just goes on and on and on from what we see from day one uh, until, until the grave. I was, uh, right after the, the second Gulf War, 
broke out. Um, I was in Southern California in a hospital with my father. He'd just fallen down and broken his hips in, in his 80s. And I flew out from Finland, arriving during this war mania and war fever. And in that hospital room on the TV came a show about, well, we thought we knew where Saddam Hussein was. We thought he was in this building due to some mobile phone uh, technology or something or other. So we leveled this building. And from the rubble, we removed the body of an old man, a teenage girl, and a boy. And at that point, as an American living in Finland, or as an American period, you know, the tears came to my eyes. And I was angry. You know, what gives these people the right to kill three innocent people in the name of trying to kill, without justice, uh, another person, then saying, oh, sorry, uh, not even saying we're sorry. But, you know, it's just senseless and it's absurd. So I, I, I went on my discussion, uh, my opinion of this with my father, he, he sort of shared a similar opinion. We're having this serious discussion while he's lying in the hospital bed. And from behind a curtain, in the next bed over, behind a curtain, comes this voice that says, you guys are just right on. And this is another old man, a mm. World War II veteran. So we opened the curtain, and he says, the problem is, I've seen this. I watched, I forget his number, I think it was a thousand. He says, I watched a thousand men die on the Arizona, Pearl Harbor. War is not something you take lightly. War is just incredibly hard. It's hell. You know, I'm paraphrasing him, but this was the idea. And uh, we had this discussion, and the three of us, he, he'd seen war. My father had not of the same era. Uh, he was stationed in the States during World War II. I, I've not been to war. Um, but this old man said, my kids, they don't know what war is. They're all gung-ho. They don't listen to me. And I said, well, you got to try. you got you got to explain. You've seen it. You know, tell them it's not all flags and rah-rah and we'll kick their ass. And he says, I, I can't. He says, I have, I have whatever number of grandkids he has. You know, <laughs> They don't listen to me. Yeah. I'm just an old man. It doesn't matter that I've, I've been there and I've seen it. They think they know what war is. They don't have a clue what war is. So. Yeah. It, it's, yeah. It's amazing how, uh, how ignorance is cultivated as a way of of allowing this wheel to keep spinning. I, I was, yeah. And it's not just ignorance, of course. It's, it's again, you know, this cultural belief, it's, it's uh, the values, it's the stories, it's the narratives, it's the media, it's the politics, it's the whole, the whole system. And of course, some people are getting just filthy rich 10 times over on it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would love it if instead of calling returning veterans heroes, we would call them what they are, which is victims victims of of us victims of our own systems yes um not to disempower anyone but you know i i was listening to an interview recently with a guy who said you know i went over to afghanistan to to defend the afghani people and i thought dude <laughs> really how can you i mean how do you have a worldview that allows you to take something like that seriously yeah. Well, I mean, I'm sure he's just repeating what he's been told and told and told. Exactly. And, yeah. 
when pressed for why why are we doing this? Why am I here? You know, it's in some way a satisfying answer. I'm I'm doing some good. You know, you were when you were talking earlier about the uh, the research you did and how the 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 story that was reported turned out to be so different from the actual uh, evidence. Um, I was reminded before I got into this sort of research, I did a lot of research in consciousness studies and drugs and uh, ethnobotany and stuff like that. Uh-huh. And I remember all these. There's so many cases that align perfectly with the sort of thing we're talking about. Where, for example. Uh, in the 60s, uh, somebody uh, did an experiment, and from the experiment, they concluded that LSD uh, caused chromosomal damage. And this was published in Science, and it was on the front page of the New York Times. And so uh-huh. everybody heard that LSD damages your chromosomes, and so then they start having visions of having kids with you know 20 toes and three arms and all that. And right. But then someone went back and looked at the original study, and it turns out what they did was they had some DNA in a Petri dish or something, and they dropped some LSD on it, and then they checked it 24 hours later, and yes, some of the chromosomes were broken. But then the person, I think it was Andrew Weil, was looking at it, he he did exactly the same thing with uh, dropping distilled water on the DNA, and then another control where he put nothing at all on the DNA, and in every case, the DNA the, was the breaking down. Exactly. Wow. Exactly. So there was absolutely horrible methodology, right? But because right. it reinforced a, a politically acceptable worldview, it was published in Science and on the front page of the New York Times. Whereas then, when he published his research showing that, hey, this this is not replicable, it's completely methodologically uh, uh, invalid that didn't appear in the new york times at all and certainly not in science so well, you, you know i i gotta interject here just a little bit of optimism in this one and i don't mean it in a self-serving way but to my surprise when patrick Sudaberry and i published our contradictory findings in science this came out in, in 2013 so just last year um I think some gut feeling or intuition or divine light or something struck me because when I was thinking of a title with Patrick, somehow the words origins of war got into our title. And we were just overwhelmed with calls from the press and so forth about that article. So, I mean, I I understand your point, but um, I I felt it was important to interject that in this case. So here I'm talking about the article we did that basically contradicted the Bowles study, the Pinker study, the uh, Rangan uh, demonic males, chimpanzee model type of approach, and so forth. Now, with science, you do these very short articles, the reports, and so forth. You don't have much time to contextualize it or critique others. Certainly, there's no space for that. So, it stands on the basis of the findings. So, I think there is, you know, it, it, in some way, it, it reaffirmed my dwindling faith in science, the magazine, and somewhat... Um, no, no, no longer rose-colored glasses about science, the process, but it did, you know, in some way make me feel, okay, so maybe there, there is some hope here that we also can get uh, our conclusions published and our conclusions out there in the media also. Of course, it's a flash-in-the-pan type of situation when, when you have an article and the news reports afterwards, but still, you know, that's something. It's definitely something, and, and I think you're you're engaged in a debate in which both sides have, um, you know, a strong public behind them. I think a lot of people are very 
eager to hear what you have to say. They're eager uh, to 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 believe that war is not part of human nature and that there is a way out of this mess. Uh, well, you know, part of that, I think, and this is not science, this is my reflection, we actually are the species we're writing about and studying. And I've talked to various men, and I, and I certainly feel it myself. It's like, okay, so I'm supposed to have, according to this theory, a inclination that I want to go over there and kill complete strangers over the hill because... I can. It makes no sense to me, you know. Yeah. E even the idea that I'm gonna go walking around and getting a fight. Now, now, granted, there are a few individuals in the population who do go wanting to get in a fight, and they do go walking around looking for a fight. Granted, but they are by no means the majority in any population we're talking about, you know. So, I mean, what I'm saying here is, is we're all um, males, and with some exceptions, we can look into our own natures. And this can give us some insights. So, I mean, what I want to do personally is I want to avoid a fight. I want to avoid injury. I want to avoid trouble. I want to avoid getting people. What I, I do want to do, like your comment before, you know, um, I, I get enjoyment out of helping people, cooperating, seeing a smile on their face. And, and this would be very important in the nomadic forager past that we've all lived through. So... Yeah, we have that capacity to kill. I mean, that's obvious. Look at the planet today. But the question is, you know, how recent or how old is that? And how much sense does it make to start calling things like the Afghan situation or Iraq or World War II having anything to do with, you know, our, our past uh, evolved human nature? Yeah, yeah. You've got another chapter in there from Robert Sapolsky, who was also at this conference where I was with uh, David Buss. And, and, uh, and which conference was this? This was in Mexico. It was called the Ciudad de las Ideas, City of Ideas. Yeah. Um, it was it was quite interesting. Uh, the sort of main event was a debate between um, uh, Deepak Chopra and uh, Richard Dawkins. Wow. <laughs> which devolved into name-calling and silliness, oh, I'm afraid. Yeah, but uh, it was interesting. I mean, for me personally, it was interesting because it was the first time I'd met Helen Fisher uh, in a context where we could actually chat for a while, and uh -huh. David Buss, and one of David Buss's um, graduate students who now teaches at UCLA, Marty Hazelton, was also there. And I think what happened was... My wife, Casilda, was was with me, and um, they decided they liked her before they knew who she was, <laughs> <laughs> which can tend to happen. Well, yeah, these things work. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so then by the time I walked in and they realized, oh, my God, wait a minute, she's his husband? She's the co-author of that book? Oh, my God. It was too late. And so there I was in the bar with them, and we actually got along quite well. Um, but we all avoided talking about... Uh, you know, th theories of human violence and things like that. <laughs> but I like the truth, the ceasefire. Yeah, it was sort of no man's land there in the bar. Um, now, while we're talking about politics and and the way mainstream media tends to distort these things, what's your position on the whole Margaret Mead Derek Freeman controversy? Oh well, I think Margaret Mead has uh, really been uh, abused, actually posthumously. Um, I, I read a chapter, I, I, I think you at some point had seen my earlier book, Human Potential for Peace, I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah I think I've got I, that, yeah. 
I, I devoted a, a chapter to that one, which I found another case. I, I, I can check the actual title, but I think it called it a bizarre case of skullduggery. Mm. So, um, Margaret Mead, she's not perfect. None of us are. But um, she's really been abused uh, by Derek Friedman. And then this has been picked up by Rangham and Peterson and demonic males and by a whole host of other people who really took what Derek Freeman said at face value. Uh, it, it's a complicated controversy, clearly, with different aspects. But what I'm talking about in particular is the human nature question, the war and peace question. And I, I really looked into this carefully, and I concluded that, that Freeman was absolutely not to be trusted yeah. on this. Um, for example, to give you a specific example, he quotes Margaret Mead as saying that the Samoans were unaggressive, and unaggressive is the one word in quotation marks. So, if you go back and, and search, um, where is this actually coming from? It's out of her book about sex and temperament in three primitive societies, of which Samoa, and Samoa is the, 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 the culture in question here, uh, is not one of them. <laughs> <laughs> and that's interesting, isn't it? <laughs> it's not one of them. It's, it's like in her overall discussion, um, she makes one comment there. Uh, I'll have to paraphrase because I'm not going to be able to find the book and dig it off a shelf in a moment's notice. But, but um, the idea is that where um, aggression is not appreciated in, in um, young people, it's it's actually considered to be the province of the uh, the older titled uh, or ranking men. Um, and, and somewhere in that sentence that I'm paraphrasing is the word unaggressiveness. And, and that's it, the whole book, the whole source. And he's managed to use that as one of his various arguments. I think he cites it three times, unaggressiveness, 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 always set up in such a way that Margaret Mead is supposedly talking about the unaggressiveness of the Samoans. So it's just not there. I, I give other examples of this and then come around to the conclusion that this has just been a really unfair hatchet job. Yeah. And the reason that I got into it is because, uh, you know, Demonic Males came out, I believe it was 1999. Uh, it's still selling well, I think. It's got a glamorous title. It's got a good writing. You know, Peterson is a science writer. Um, but, gosh, here we come back around full circle to science and what is science and what is not science. Yeah. But they take Friedman, you know, they swallow his argument, hook, line, and sinker. It'd be interesting sometime if I ever meet Richard Rangham in person to talk to him about that. I, I did notice several things. We're talking now about Richard Rangham from Harvard, who's uh, sort of made a name for this coalitional aggression, the so-called chimpanzee model. As pointed out originally that humans kill sometimes, chimpanzees kill sometimes. Is there an evolutionary link? Uh, you know, does it go back to a common ancestor? Which is what they did argue in Demonic Males. But if we look at Rangham's most recent writings with uh, his grad student, Luke Glowacki, I'm not sure how to say the last name, um, he's really backtracked on a lot of these things. For instance, in that article uh, came out, I believe it was 2012, maybe it was 2013, um, he's no longer advocating that there would have been a common ancestor, you know, the linking chimpanzees to humans and their, their ability to kill others and their observed um, killing of others under certain circumstances. And, and likewise, 
in Demonic Males, 1999, there's a whole chapter about how peaceful societies don't exist. Well, sometime in the intervening 14, 15 years, Rangham, and I give him credit for you know changing his mind, um, he, he certainly acknowledges now that there are some peaceful societies, that they do exist. Now, he still quibbles with me in particular about which societies might be more peaceful than other ones and you know, doesn't like some of my examples and so forth. But the overall picture, I take this as, well, this is some sort of progress about somebody can change their mind. And the third point, which really surprised me when I was reading this earlier in the summer, was that the whole idea of psychological mechanisms which predispose humans to killing. Uh, through, through the 90s and into the early 2000s, if I have my dates straight, um, Richard Wrangham was arguing that humans quite possibly possess these psychological dispositions and you know, predispositions for killing uh, members of other neighboring groups when the risks are low. And now in this most recent article, again, by Wrangham and Glowacki, from I believe it's 2012, he's totally changed his tune on that one, and, and there's a sentence there that says something like, it's not highlighted anyway, but it's a sentence that says something like that, well, you know, the psychological mechanisms have not been demonstrated. Hmm. Well, so, good good for him. You know, it, yeah. it, that is engagement. That's evolution of, of opinions, and that's what, you know, I was saying earlier, Steven Pinker doesn't do. And that's the difference yes. between a scholar and a propagandist, in my opinion. It's not whether or not I agree with them. It's whether or not they'll even listen and engage with arguments uh, contrary to theirs. So, yeah, if he's engaging with you and recognizing, you know, at least that you've got a different perspective that's legitimate, uh, good for him. Wasn't yeah, he, he, well, I, I think probably saying engaging with me is probably a little, little overstating it, but maybe next year, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, at least you're not being dismissed as that bonobo guy. I just wanted to say um, how happy I was to see uh, Franz Duvall had written the foreword to this book. Um, I met Franz Duvall on that same listserv where where you and I first engaged. Uh-huh. And you know he he popped in occasionally and you know would engage in a, a debate or you know add some his two cents to whatever was being discussed. And as I was finishing Sex at Dawn I I was feeling kind of um a little guilty because as you said about your work, you know, you've never been out uh living with hunter gatherers. You're using other people's field work to develop your theories. And uh, I do the same. I've never, I'm not a primatologist. I'm not even an anthropologist. I'm using, you know, all this work other people are right. doing. And so when you disagree with the people upon whose work you rely, that's kind of an awkward situation. You know, he did the work and here I am saying, nah, I think you're wrong about this. And, you know, um, so. <laughs> I see your point, of course. Yeah. So I. I sent an email to him and Helen Fisher and uh, one or two other people saying, listen, you know, here's the situation. I respect your work. I admire what you've been doing. Uh, disagree with some of your conclusions. And um, if you'd like to take a look at the section of the book where I deal with your stuff, I'd be happy to send it to you. And if you think I'm being unfair or I'm missing something, I'd be very you know, happy to hear what you have to say. So Helen Fisher said she was too busy, no thanks, um, but Franz Duvall said, okay, I'll take a look at it. So I sent the stuff to him, yeah. and uh, 
And he wrote back and said, well, okay, have you considered this study and have you looked at this and that? And and I went back and forth and I had looked at the studies and, you know, we we engaged in a you know very friendly debate for six or seven exchanges. And then he said, well, I don't know, you might be right. These are uh, these are important issues that we're, we need to discuss before we'll ever resolve these things. And uh, wow, yeah. yeah, it's good for him. Yeah, and I and I wrote back. I said that so wonderful to hear you say that. Could I quote you publicly saying that? And he said, Yeah, you can use it as a blurb on the book if you want. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I've got a blurb on Sex at Dawn from. You know, a scholar, world famous scholar that I wrote to out of nowhere, challenging him. Yeah. Now, if that's not evidence that you know the the alpha males of our species are clearly capable of generosity and non conflictive behavior, I don't know what is. It's a great story. I appreciate you sharing that with me. Yeah. Yeah, I think Franz is great. Um, I've known him off and on for a couple decades now. And he's, of course, incredibly busy and into so many things. I really did have to keep begging and pleading for him to write the preface. But uh, he came through, obviously. Yeah, yeah, he's wonderful. Listen, I know you've got students waiting to talk to you, and I don't want to drag you on any further. But I really appreciate you taking time to uh, to say hello and, and uh, you know, let, let our oh. listeners hear some of the scholarship of peace. You're, you're more than welcome. Thank you so much for the invitation. I thoroughly enjoyed our discussion. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say When everyone you've ever known Is headed for a headstone I don't wanna give the end away But we're gonna die one day body is an animal, doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play? Your heart is in a birdcage, singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Go down 
song will go singing to the smoke alarms will dance into the ground.